Hello and welcome to the House of Apis podcast. I'm Mila. And I'm Katie. And we are together for the first time in person in two years. Woohoo! Yay, yay, yay! We never thought it would happen. <laughs> yes. Since we met, we have been get getting together at least once a year. And since we started working together, we have done it in what we consider a middle point, that is New York. And we have done it as an annual retreat. That is a moment to sit down, discuss about House of Appies, what our plans are in the future, and of course, have a little fun. This year, we decided to attend the TED Women Conference that was being held this week in Palm Springs. And we met up first in Seattle for a couple of days and then took off to the conference. So we are together in Palm Springs. Many of you are familiar with TED, but for those of you who aren't, we wanted to make sure you knew what that meant. And by the way, Mila ran into a few people at the resort the event was being held at who had no idea what TED was. So we know you're out there. So let's first share what TED is. TED is an organization whose mission is to connect people with ideas worth spreading. They have many events throughout the year, including an annual general gathering and then also an annual TED Women Conference which focuses on ideas and issues impacting women and girls or highlighting women and girls making positive change in the world. In addition, there are many TEDx and TED Women events around the globe in different cities and the online content that they provide that's available to anyone. If you haven't checked out TED before, we encourage you to do so. And for those of you that have, it never hurts to go back and check. And as the videos get published from some of the sessions we experienced over this last week, We'll share them with you through our website and our community platform. Yes, and we are going to talk about what it was to attend the conference. And for me, it was the first time in person. We will share some of the learnings and impressions about the locations, the, att the attendees, the speakers. And we are going to talk to you about what we are taking with us home and what had been the inspiration that we got from these three days of that conference. And the first thing that I wanted to share with you is the theme of this year. So it seems that every year Ted puts together a theme that is driving the speakers and the whole curation of content. And the theme of this year is what's now. And that it was divided on six sections. What's now for women? That was the first day. Then what's now for work and play? What's now for planet Earth? What's now for ingenuity and invention? And the last part of it was what's now for the future. There were some discovery sessions as well throughout the days, and people could sign up for those. And that was uh, experiential, something that everybody could do. And uh, But we're going to start first with an, our general impressions and personal experiences. Because as I said before, this is my very first time attending a TED conference. And I think you have attended some. Yes, I have. I have. I'm a TED junkie. And so, you know, I'll get started from my side. I very much enjoyed this TED Women Conference for 2020, as most of us experienced. None of us were going to conferences or coming to convenings. And so I did do the TED Women Conference that was virtual last year, which was super informative. And I got to listen to one of my idols, Gloria Steinem, but I was excited this year to come do this in person. And I really, I had a ton of learning and I really enjoyed this. But what I do actually want to share with our listeners out there is I think the local TEDx sessions and TED Women's sessions 
are just as awesome. They're they're clearly not multi-day events, but as far as feeling inspired and the learning and the opportunities to connect and the experiential opportunities in between the sessions, I, I have experienced that those smaller local experiences are super fantastic and I, I, in some ways might have even been better than what we experienced over the last three days. So I do want to just encourage you, if you have them in your community, that you should um, check those out. And by the way, they're far more affordable than coming <laughs> to these bigger conferences. Mila had talked about the experiential discovery sessions, and I had an opportunity to do a hot air balloon experience, which is on my bucket list. And for those of you that might have seen the social media post, because I now just took something off my bucket list, I need to add something because I like to keep it long. <laughs> so feel free to send me some ideas. But it was super cool. And it's just you're moving, but yet you're calm and still at the same time. It was very bizarre. It's hard for me to describe. The thing I will share with all of you is Palm Springs is very toasty hot. And this hot air balloon ride took place at two o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And the very heat, <laughs> yes, on a very sunny, hot day. And the heat from keeping the balloon afloat was like burning and scalding my head. So my <laughs> advice to anybody wanting to do this is to do it early in the morning in a cold area. <laughs> so that's what I would say from there. And then just a couple of takeaways for me. One of the speakers was Candace Parker, who's an Olympic uh, champion for women's basketball. Very successful NCAA career and WNBA career. But what she really was focusing on was the next and upcoming generation and about how the boxes that we put ourselves in or put others in, Generation Z doesn't care about those boxes and is pushing back on them and is going to carve a new future that doesn't really think about labels in the same way that millennials, Generation Z, boomers, et cetera, have thought about. To me, that was just interesting because I also thought it was evident from some of the participants and some of the conversations that this is a generation that's probably going to move mountains for us. The other thing was on night one, the final speaker of that session was Roseanne Cash, which frankly, just a flipping icon. So that was pretty phenomenal. And then the last piece was today, our last day there, Catherine Colbert. And we'll, I'll talk more about this session later on. She is an iconic lawyer who argued the Planned Parenthood versus Casey case in 1992, which was a Supreme Court case and is widely credited with saving Roe versus Wade. And it was just very surreal listening to her talk at the same time that the Supreme Court is listening to a new case that will likely disband it. So that was just to me sitting there listening to it, knowing that was just a really interesting moment that I probably will not forget for the rest of my life. But that's my first initial gut reactions. How about you, Mila? Yeah, that was actually a very powerful moment for everybody in the room. I attended, let me just start with the, how my day started. So while you were flying a little bit above ground, I was uh, deeply the black girl's way. I attended a, a workshop by senior uh, fellow Kira Gaunt who is an ethnomusicologist. I didn't even know that existed. A ethnomusicologist? Exactly. Yeah. And so, yes, so I joined this class 
And basically what she does, Kira, is that she study the music in its social and cultural context. And that workshop was a mean to understand where this culture and how black girls uh, used to play and how that has evolved. So basically we were clapping hands and learned about the meaning of some of the songs that had been passed on through different generations of black girls. So it was very interesting for me, especially coming from a different country where I haven't had that, let's say, experience or I haven't seen it. We'll have, to put a, we'll have to put a link in the notes. I'm assuming she yeah. has like a site or something so yeah. other people yes. can go explore that. And she has some videos as well that she shows of how a girls play and they used to play in the 1940s. So it was very interesting. Then the other thing that I was amazed at was the creativity of people in general on these talks. But there was one person that actually got uh, my attention, it is the people or the group of people from TEDx Sao Paulo that during the COVID last year, during the problem with COVID that obviously there was the need for social distancing, they partnered with a football stadium, and I'm talking football as in soccer, a stadium that in Brazil that are huge in Sao Paulo, and then they partnered with them to provide the opportunity to have the same spread in by having a drive-in, a TEDx drive-in, which is a great uh, way to partner with an organization to have the opportunity to share the ideas in a way that was social distance and, and it was safe. And the funny thing is I can imagine that instead of applauding, people were just honking the horns. That was... Yeah, yeah, nice. yeah. That's <laughs> what she was saying. The picture was pretty awesome. Yeah. And there were several spaces as well throughout the conference and throughout the resort where we are staying to interact, leave your opinion, be heard and participate. So that's just our initial impressions. We're going to spend this podcast sharing with you some of the things that truly inspired us and caught our attention and some of the ideas that are lingering with us because they were, they're things that we need to seriously ponder. But before that, it is time for our compelling question of the episode. So I figured that since all the speakers needed to address this question, that you and I should answer the question, what now? And there was an opportunity um, throughout the, the conference for us to enter and send in our own responses to the question, what now? And several participants were selected to come up and share their thoughts. And some of them got us really riled up. <laughs> In a good way, motivated. <laughs> so, Mila, what now? Yeah, I think that the first thing, as you said before, is that we need to have some time to reflect on all the learnings and all the ideas that we heard. And also to go dive into some of the research that people talk about. But for me, uh, the one now is a call to action. What do we do now in an individual manner or as a collective uh, society? Because there are many things that need and require action. And, and I think that a lot of people are feeling, because of these two years that have been so crazy within the pandemic, that people are feeling uh, maybe a little bit hesitant and not knowing how to act. But one statistic that hit me hard today was the fact that from for example, in the U.S., from the 500,000 elected officials, 90%, this is in the U.S., 90% are white and 65% are white men. So obviously they don't re represent the population. So when we're talking about some issues that are affecting different communities, and in my case, I'm talking mostly, of course, about the 
the women and also about Hispanic communities. The fact that people are not getting involved and they are not voting or they are not making the voice heard, that is a problem. So I think that for me, what now is a call to action. It's a call to make your voice heard. It's a call to try to interact with others, to bring ideas to life, to make sure that your voice is heard. For me, unfortunately, I knew that statistic, so it wasn't as shocking to me. It's still sad to me, but it wasn't as shocking to me. For me, when I was thinking about answering the question about what's now, for me, it's about moving forward and not waiting. There were a lot of speakers that got up and described themselves as impatient. And, and I feel that same uh, characteristic within myself. And for example, if male allies aren't going to help us break the glass ceiling, and to help us close the gap between the gender pay equity issue, we need to just tear it down. Let's stop trying to like rally everybody in kumbaya around this. We got to find a different way. And it's just time to tear it down and create and build a more equitable system that is inclusive of white men as well, but also leaves and gives space for all the other individuals that are part of, of the work environment. The other thing for me is, right, like, again, going to what's happening today in the news, if patriarchal governments are going to continue to make decisions about women's bodies, we need to scream at the top of our lungs. That's unacceptable. And to your point, vote and vote them out yes. is the other thing, right? Yes. If big business isn't going to prioritize a climate crisis, I'm going to take my money elsewhere. So for me, what's now is about not waiting and not staying quiet and using the power that sits within my ability to vote, my ability to speak up and use the platforms accessible to me and how I spend my money. Yes, yes, yes. Both of us, we want action. Action! Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's today's compelling question. And that's going to come up that we always put the compelling question out to you as well. But this is also going to be our ask. So we're going to we're going to solidify this question as we wrap up today's episode to find out from you what's next in your perspective. As we move into diving deeper into some of the things we took away from this, one of the reasons I always enjoy going to these is because I always walk away inspired. So let's start there. Who are some of the speakers who inspired us over the last few days and why? So, Mila, I'm going to let you get this party started. Yeah, let me start with Diana Adams. And Diana Adams is a lawyer and uses the pronouns they, them. And Diana founded a boutique LGBTQ family law and mediation firm based in New York City. And then she's also now in Frankfurt, Germany. And she's serving primarily same-sex couples and non-nuclear family. One of the things that caught my attention from Diana's talk is this idea of the modern family. She talked about this modern family of having a, anybody in your life that is important to you, that you can form family with, have their same rights that a married couple, a hetero married couple has. Basically, she talked about some statistics that I don't have. Unfortunately, I didn't write them down because I was mesmerizing listening to her. But basically, or to them, sorry. Basically, the statistics are that the family that is portrayed in uh, traditionally in the media and that people talk about, that is a mother and father and uh, two kids, 
that is the list of the families that actually exist in the world at this moment. So the composition of a family is a totally different one than that of that people have in their minds. So that means that we need to have laws or services or structures that actually support and protect these kind of families. She talked about uh, platonic co-parents, which I love. And I was thinking, yes, if you have a, a very good friend and you want to have a kid together because you want both to have that experience, then that is great that you can have some laws that are protecting you because Right now, if you are living with somebody or if you're having a relationship with somebody, if it's not your husband or your, or your wife or your direct family member, then, for example, if you are in the hospital, they cannot go visit you. They cannot cross the borders now with a pandemic. So that is something that is not being protected and the laws are not thinking about the different type of families that they are there. So I thought that her, sorry, there and I have to correct myself because <laughs> so their talk was very interesting one and then put the idea of the different family in the forefront and how important it is to facilitate the conversations and to support the creation of clear personal agreements and solid legal agreements to protect their families. Yeah, Diana was talking, giving the example, for example, as same-sex couples who have either a male or female surrogate that is helping them to have their child and to have those clear conversations and agreements before that ever happens because they were talking about how you can't be the sperm donor one day and the dad the next day. Yeah. <laughs> so making clear agreements on that perspective. For those of you that are interested and want to learn more, Diana's website is for an organization is for the Chosen Family Law Center. And you can find that at Chosen Family Law Center, one word, dot org. And we'll put the link in the podcast as well for those of you that might be interested in learning a bit more. So I was actually really inspired by the speaker, Emily Pilliton Lamb, and she started uh, an organization called Girl Garage. And I was really, I think I was really inspired by this because I just finished, and I actually think for those of you that have been listening, you've heard me complaining about this for a just finished a renovation in our basement. And when I was seeking a general contractor to help us with that work, I was able in the city of Seattle, there is a list of women-owned trades workers. And whether that's businesses or whether they're just freelance. And so I purposely chose to work with a women-owned general contractor company in order to support women in this space. And Emily was talking about in 2021, women only make up about 10% of the construction industry workers, even though women are 47% of the overall U.S. workforce. And it's not from a lack of interest, but partially a lack of education, cultivation, and seeing the path that's a potential career. And the other thing that she was sharing was from a, an income perspective, generally young girls are guided towards things like education, being a teacher, being a nurse, those types of things. And actually, general contractor, what she was saying is that often the pay for those positions are twice as much. And she's made it her mission and to basically bring young girls in and teach them the trade and help them learn new skills. 
So she has an organization that she started called Girl Garage or Girls Garage. And it's a nonprofit design and building program and dedicated workspace for girls and gender expansive youth ages 9 to 18. And they go through classes in carpentry, welding, architecture, and activist art. And they support and equip a community of fearless girls who are building the world they want to see established. And what she was showing is while she was doing this talk, by the way, she was building a toolbox, yeah. which was, <laughs> that was cool. she's up there with all her, her saws and stuff like that, building this toolbox. And I guess that's one of the beginner projects that these young girls do, but then they go out into the community and they she was showing pictures of they take the skills they learned and they went out and built a chicken coop or greenhouses at schools and, and facilities for homeless communities and those types of things. So they go and take those skills out there and they learn how to actually build them on a bigger project than just building their toolbox. I don't know. I thought it was cool. I thought it was kick-ass. And frankly, as somebody who hires general contractors, there's something to be said I, with this group that I used. One of the things I loved is because I never felt like I was talked down to. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was a client that was being considered and never once felt like, oh, it's just a stupid woman who doesn't really understand what needs to be done to mm -hmm. do her renovation. So there was something to that. And so, you know what? Get more of these girls in there and have more women as general contractors would be fabulous. So I was very inspired by her. Yeah, and I like that, uh, the fact that what she made, the toolbox that she made was then put for auction. Yeah. So to, to help her. Really yes. Well. I hope she made a ton of money for the organization. And for anybody interested, it's girlsgarage.org. One word, girlsgarage.org. Well, that's weird. That's like a word you keep saying and it starts sounding weird. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be in the uh, podcast notes. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the next person that I think inspired us was uh, Gina Chavez. She's a bilingual Latin folk singer, songwriter, who blends the sounds of the Americas with tension and grace. Gina, if you have to describe her, she is not very tall. She is tiny, thin petite. person. She's petite. She's yeah. petite. But this power that comes out of her mouth when she starts singing and the way she moves, she commands the attention of the room. It was unbelievable. So she started singing and I'm not sure what was her first song, but then she paused and she started talking about her origins and she started talking about uh, how she needed to find in a way her voice and that she was very busy recording her first Spanish language album that is called uh, Means, uh, something like the one in power, the one on, on command in a way, so who is, yeah, in power. And then she felt that this song, the way that she was recording, she didn't really get there. She was not very happy with it. And one of her things is that she always had this uh, challenge for herself that she was not, or she lamented that she was not being born in Latin America and immersed from infancy in its cultures and tradition. But then there was a moment that she decided, okay, no, let me record it now. And she started what she says, screaming, but her screaming is just a powerful voice. And she actually, that brought her to uh, the Latin Grammy as a Latin Grammy nominee in 2020 for Best Pop Rock Album. 
And and she is uh, now releasing this album that is called La Quemanda. She was a, a great performer and she was also a, such a nice person. I had the opportunity to run into her when we were in one of the breaks and she was selling her album. I started talking to her in Spanish, so then we bonded there. And she has an organization that is called Niñas Arriba, that is a college fund that she co-founded with her wife for young women in uh, El Salvador. She also works as a cultural ambassador with the U.S. State Department. And again, her passion is this foundation that is called Niñas Arriba. And we will put the, the link of Gina Chavez and her foundation, Niñas Arriba, on the uh, notes for the podcast. She was totally kick-ass. Yeah. She was awesome. She was so awesome. Yeah. Um, And so then the last person that we're going to highlight for inspiring us, she's pretty kick-ass as well, too. All the women. Her name is Srishti Bakshi. And she is, all of her work and what she's trying to do is to address gender-based violence and doing it through an organization that's trying to increase mobility options for women. She, born and raised uh, in India and kept seeing the the violence against women, the danger of rape, that women couldn't walk alone in the evening by themselves without risking their own safety. She had a, an experience herself when she was young at a movie theater where a, a man jumped out and groped her. And she s- said no, right? Like she wants to do something about this. So she decided she was going to walk from the southernmost point of India to the northernmost point. And she did a 2,789 mile walk which for those of you trying to understand, that is also the equivalent of walking from Los Angeles to New York City. She walked for 230 continuous days. She ended up stopping in and around 170 cities, and she met more than 100,000 women on this journey. And she ended up filming a documentary um, called Womb, Women of My Billion, identifying key issues at work in preventing women from escaping violence. And that main thing she found was inhibiting mobility. So on her journey, she met another woman who she described as kick-ass, came up on a motor scooter and was like all rock and roll and everything. And the two of them have come together to create an organization that's it's called M-O-W, MOWO Fleet. And it's an initiative which trains and employs women as delivery drivers and on-demand taxi operators providing them with the opportunity to earn both income and independence. But also women can call a motorbike or an auto rickshaw driven by a woman and ease their own fear of sexual violence while they travel from one location to another. So she was pretty awesome, in my opinion. And oh, I'm not going to remember, Does it have? she said how many women they had trained right now to be able to drive scooters or motor vehicles. Yeah, I don't remember how many they had, but I think that she had this idea that she wanted to have a million drivers. Yeah, by 2030 or something like that. Yes. Yeah. So it was pretty awesome. And the we'll get the website for her organization as well so that you can link to that. But it's I think it's like M-O-W-O fleet dot I-N M-O-W-O fleet dot I-N. Yeah, it's hard to get that O after the death <laughs> there. Yeah, yeah, she was great. And she was very excited to tell us a story. It was amazing. 
Yeah. Yeah. So the, you know, so that's four people that we felt pretty inspired by. And it, it and we had a pretty long list when we were trying to narrow it down who we wanted to cover for the podcast. So we'll share more with you through the House of Apis website, as well as the Hive and our social media. But just to give you a flavor of who we were inspired by. But this is now time for our Did You Know? And I thought this was cool. And maybe this is because I'm a book geek and I love reading <laughs> and I would totally nerd out over books. That was cool. It, I thought it was super cool. So yeah. there was a conceptual artist named Katie Pater- Patterson. Katie Patterson. Maybe it's because I like her first name that I maybe. liked it so much. Maybe. <laughs> anyway, you feel identified. She is a conceptual artist and she talked to us about this project she has been working on called Future Library. And so the Future Library has the objective to select and invite authors to basically compassionately sustain artwork for its 100 year duration. So the goal is that the works of literature that get put within this future library don't get touched for 100 years. And in 100 years, when we're all long gone, somebody is going to open that and get to see these works of um, literature. So the authors are being selected for their outstanding contributions to literature and poetry and for their work's ability to capture the imagination of this and future generations. So key words in the selection process are imagination and time. So she's done actually a lot of her conceptual art is based on time. She had one that you could listen to a glacier melting. She had one piece of work that was capturing all the dead stars that had have disappeared from the, the atmosphere. And so she has this passion about the meaning of time and what time means. So that's a bit these works of literature are doing that. So the trust is inviting 100 outstanding writers of any nationality or age to contribute works in any genre or language. The length of the piece is entirely for the author to decide. And you'll know some of the authors that have already contributed are, for example, Margaret Atwood. So I'd be totally intrigued to know what she put in there, (laughs) but I will be long gone. Never know. Unless the cryogenic stuff gets figured out and I'm frozen and come back. <laughs> or David Mitchell. So I thought it was super cool. Yeah, very interested. Yeah. So if anybody out there is interested in exploring it a bit more or just to, to learn more about Katie's artwork, because it was super cool. It's at futurelibrary, one word, dot N-O. We'll put the link in there as well, too. But I thought that was cool. And that's this episode's Did You Know? Yeah, and I'm going to add another did you know, Katie, uh, here. She's feisty. Yes, while you were now talking about this really cool library of the future, I got a note from the Gina Chavez, actually. Where, <laughs> wow, out off the presses, Yeah, people. exactly. I mean, it's actually very funny because it is, we say in Spanish, la reventé. Is because I was talking to about her and then she just came. <laughs> and basically we talked yesterday about uh, featuring her organization, Niñas Arriba, in the Solidarity Pillar on our website. And then she's basically saying it was great to connect. I'm excited to learn more about House of Apis. Yeah. So that's who she is. I was telling you that she's a very kind person besides how talented she is. So. This is a, did you know? (laughs) And a Grammy winner. Yeah, exactly, exactly. exactly. Super, super cool. All right. Okay, so let's keep going. So 
One of the things that is known for is bringing urgent trends, issues, and global concerns to the forefront, as well as initiating conversation about topics that need to be discussed. And this TED event was no different. We wanted to share some of the topics that were top of mind for us at the end of the event and share some of the messages and calls to action that we heard. So, for example, and that was obviously very timely, is that there were three epidemiologists that talked about COVID-19. And obviously, we are here when we are just learning or recently learning about the Omicron virus. So they all talk about that COVID-19 is here to stay and that we need to learn to modify our lives to, let's say, survive it and get past it. Because we, they all said that this is here to stay and that it's going to continue happening and evolving. Well, and they all said the pandemic will end. Exactly. If we can all do something about it. Exactly. But that COVID is likely here to stay. Exactly. And then the other thing that they said was that we have to prepare for the next epidemic that is surely coming. They also talked about that they, these three ladies saw the challenge from different perspectives. There were three ladies. Jennifer Nusso from the John Hopkins Center for Health Security here in the United States. Francisca Mutapi, she is a professor in global health, infection, and immunity, and she is the deputy director of the NIHR Global Health Research Unit, Tackling Infections to Benefit Africa, and a co-director of the Global Health Academy at the University of Edinburgh, and Maria van Kerkhove, epidemiologist and COVID-19 Day World Health Organization. So the three of them had similar view in the ways that we have to work in our daily lives to make sure that we are protected. However, they all say that there is an important strategy and plan for governments and societies to get protected, get vaccinated, keep washing their hands and keep protecting themselves with them with the masks. And at the same time, preparing for the new epidemics that might come. What was interesting, Maria, Maria, I actually enjoyed um, hearing from all three of these women, but Maria was very interesting for me today. And she, she very much wanted to be with us in person, but clearly, actually, two out of these three women had to call in and speak virtually yep. because they're on the front line of tackling what's going on with Omicron. But Maria was interesting because what she was talking about was how predominantly Eastern countries, whether that's Asia, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, actually responded and were well prepared because these are countries that have lived through these types of situations in the past and have adapted, adjusted, and prepared yeah. for, they know it's inevitable for these types of things to happen again. So they actually responded and managed the situations far better than the Western countries who all thought, well, that's just a problem over there. Yeah. And we've all seen this play out in the news that the United States, countries across Europe, right, like the UK, we haven't handled this very well, nor are we handling all of the things that we should be doing <laughs> to slow this down and get us out of the pandemic about getting vaccines, wearing masks, social distancing, keeping crowds down. 
right? Like that we're pushing against that. And those are all the things that need to happen. So she was she was very interesting for me as well, too. Yeah. The, the other thing that I thought was very interesting, and that was from Jennifer Nuso. She talked about three Ds. One was data. We needed to understand where everything was happening and then have consistency in the standards of how data is measured. Then drills. So what do we do in case there is something else? How do people get uh, used to it? And then defense, making sure that the people that are at risk are protected, et cetera, et cetera. And then she compared these with HIV, which I thought it was very interesting because she said, it's not that you are going to be in a lockdown because of COVID, it's that you have to learn to live with it. Imagine HIV, it was not that people couldn't have sex. Is yeah. they had to learn to have safe sex. Yeah. And that was, sometimes there are some things that are so obvious, but yeah. then people don't think about it. Yeah. And that I thought was also very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And got a good laugh from there because yeah. we're all like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. So it was super timely. Actually, so many of these topics were super timely. And I'm sure to, to it's no surprise that there were several speakers there to discuss the climate crisis as well as a lot of the exhibits and the artistic videos that we were able to view had the climate crisis as a central theme. And many of you know, and if you don't, you we're going to put a link with some information to help share. But recently there was the COP26, which is Conference of the Parties, which was in Glasgow, which had the climate crisis front and center and was the purpose of the meeting. Two women that they had speaking, both were in attendance there and were sharing their observations and reflections on what did and did not happen at COP26. One was, I, I apologize because I'm totally going to kill this name, I think. Hala Thomas' daughter? I think you're doing a great job on that. Oh, well, let's hope. She's the CEO of the B team. And then Catherine Wilkinson, who's a strategist, author, and Rhodes Scholar, also, just as a note, has a book that is a collection of female authors, poets, essayists who are writing about the climate crisis. And it's called All We Can Save and will actually be a book that we highlight on The Hive. I'm halfway through it. it there's some beautiful writing in there. So they were both there. And both women, they shared, right, there were scientists and government leaders and business leaders. I think somebody was mentioning accountants and financial experts mm -hmm. all came together to discuss the climate crisis and carve out solutions and actions against this existential threat that we as humans have created. And some are very focused on and some are in denial. And both women discussed that there was positive momentum. So they both seemed like things happened. Good things happened while this conference was going on and that there were a lot of really positive actions that were put down on paper and committed to. But both women said that what happened in Glasgow was not enough. So they were both trying to be positive, but they both said it's not enough. And that if we truly want to address the climate crisis in time to make a positive impact for today's children and the children of tomorrow, more needs to be done and it needs to be done now. And, it, and, and we can't wait to be thinking about the so we'll include some of the information that came out of COP26 for you all to read if you want to learn more about what was committed to. There's, there's been some key headlines that has been covered by the news, but there's a, a lot of really, I think, intricate things, one of which is many of these business leaders have committed to be working together throughout 2022 to lean in further to the actions that are going to do that. And as we get the videos for both of these women speaking, we'll make sure we put them out there. I thought they were very compelling. Yes. 
they were definitely. The next one that I want to highlight, the next talk was from the opener, opening speaker, from the opener speaker, from the speaker that opened the conversation. She was, she was just the first speaker. <laughs> Some Somebody had to talk first. Yes, from the first speaker of the conference. So this is Shabana Basi Rasish. Sorry about the, the way I pronounce the name. But she's a co-founder and pre president of the School of Leadership in Afghanistan. Sola is the country's first and only girls' boarding school. Shabana is not a strange to TED women. She was in stage in Washington, D.C. 10 years ago or nine years ago. And she challenged the world to dare to educate Afghan girls. And she created this school for girls that was a boarding school. She talked about how it was very important for her, for communities, to have the girls learn. She talked about how parents would ask her to accept the girls to be educated, but also that they had to they they had the request to have the records burned if there was a a, a problem, just because they knew that the Taliban was going to uh, go against these families whenever they would be back. Shabana talked about how people talk about the Taliban being back, not if they would be back. So that was actually very, I don't know, confronting. I don't know if that's the word that I'm looking for, but that's the one that is coming now, that there was this understanding and this clarity of people in Afghanistan that the Taliban was going to come back and it was going to affect their world again. In the summer of 2021, Shabana stood at the airport in Kabul as the Taliban was roaming the streets of the hometown once more, and she helped coordinate the evacuation of nearly 250 members of her school community, including 100 SOLA students away from Afghanistan and into Rwanda, where they now have the school and where now the school is yeah, taking place. She is talking about how they had been uh, brain drained uh, in Afghanistan, especially from girls that are now forced to be outside of the country. And it, somehow this talk also resonated with me because when she was talking about girls uh, being raised outside of the country, that resonated with me thinking about all the people and all the children that have left Venezuela in force because of the situation and that now they are uh, being formed outside and they cannot be, they won't return to the country. I, I think she was very eloquent and she also had the dream of saying, okay, hopefully nine years from now, I come back and I tell you about that the school is back in, in Kabul. What was interesting about her was her, the hope to build this within the, the, the borders of Afghanistan. But to your point, the reality that it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when the Taliban would take back um, power. And that, in essence, they were like they've been working a plan mm -hmm. as a contingency yeah. in case this happens. So she talked about how she was shocked at how quickly mm -hmm. Afghanistan fell to the Taliban, but they were able to within that two weeks do what Mila just shared, which yeah. was getting those two hundred fifty people out to Rwanda. It was just I. 
just an incredibly brave woman as yeah. well as all of the families that that let their daughters go. Yes, she was a very compelling yeah. start to yeah. the TED Women Conference. Yeah. The so the, the last one that I'm going to share is, as I mentioned earlier, we had the opportunity to hear from Catherine Colbert who is the public interest attorney. She's co-founded the Center for Reproductive Rights and, and, as I mentioned, argued Planned Parenthood versus Casey in the 1992 Supreme Court case that has, in essence, protected Roe v. Wade up until now. As I said, it, it, it was so surreal listening to her speak while at the exact same time the Supreme Court is hearing a case that can potentially undo what was accomplished in that case and likely will. I know I shared this with Mila. For me, it was surprising how many people in the room were shocked when she said that it was fairly inevitable that this Supreme Court will rule to put the decision around reproductive rights to the states. Katie, just let me pause here for a minute because this is very U.S.-centric and I know that we have people outside of the U.S. that might not know the gravity or the importance of Roe v. Wade? Great question, Mila. <laughs> it probably would be helpful to share that. So Roe v. Wade uh, was a landmark Supreme Court um, case in which the court ruled that the Constitution of the United States protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. So basically, keep your paws off my draws. <laughs> but anyways, I don't know where you, you were sitting in the room. People seem generally shocked by that. Yeah. And Which, I'm like, are you people kidding me? Are you watching what's happening? Yeah, with everything that had been happening and knowing all the Supreme Court uh, justices that had been put in the last years that are super conservative, yeah. then for me, it's not surprising. I actually am surprised of the naivete of people. Yeah, yeah. Which I apologize if you were shocked as well. But what was interesting, I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't be shocked. The lesson she shared is that everything she needed to learn about law, she learned on Sesame Street is what she <laughs> shared. And that was about learning to count. And she said that when it comes to the Supreme Court, that five is the magic number. And that it is unlikely that five justices on this Supreme Court will rule against this Mississippi court ruling. She also shared that it is likely that at least 20 states will make abortions illegal after this decision, and that most likely it'll be down to 15 states that preserve women's reproductive rights. So that being said, she believes the fight isn't over, so that was good news to hear, and that pursuing constitutional family planning and women's health legislation is what we need to take up. So she says, think bigger and broader and more inclusively. And that right now, it's time to get good and angry. And you know what? She didn't have to tell me to be that because I'm pissed off watching the news these days. Yeah, so. exactly. And that, and I think that from people, especially from people outside of the United States, what you need to think is that it would mean that if you want to get an abortion, need to get an abortion or decide to get an abortion, in some states, there will not be providers for you to do it safely. In some states, you will be uh, a criminal if you pursue it. And in some states, then there will not be any option for you whatsoever. And those that help you are criminals no. as well. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is going to affect women of color more than white women. Oh, women of color. Women of 
of minimal financial means. I mean, what she said and other speakers said as well, and for those of you that have been following this topic, this is not news to you, that women of means, which would be predominantly white women, white wealthy women, will find a way to get a safe abortion. Yeah. This is going to impact all the other women. Yeah. So, yeah, it just she was the only speaker that got a standing ovation when she came out. And when she finished, kind of, I was a little starstruck, I got to be honest. Besides those topics, there were a few others that raised my eyebrows. And frankly, I just need to go out and learn more about their conversations. So this, you know, is going to spark me to go get some more education. So, for example, one woman spoke about investing in and developing the technology that would allow artificial intelligence and robotics to evolve. So if, if, for example, the Mars rover was out there exploring and realized it couldn't climb the rock formation, it could, it could spontaneously evolve to be able to do what it needed to do. And she also talked about that ultimately they want to be able to have robots breed. Now, I texted this to my husband. He said, isn't this how almost every dystopian movie starts? <laughs> <laughs> this is like Terminator or something. Or like iRobot. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but So I'm going to learn more, but I'm going to tell you, it freaked me out a little bit. I, I hope that happens at the same time of the library. Yeah, so that we are not there anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's in 100 years. Poor children and grandchildren. The, another young woman is a very successful and leading designer in digital fashion. So in essence, digital clothing assets that people are using for social media and digital platforms. So imagine that I say, I want to put a picture out for House of Apis, but I have nothing that I would like to put on for that picture and so i'm like i just don't have the outfit for it i could go out and buy digital fashion that would be an overlay on my photo or in a video and there's designers that are all in on this i think what was she saying she was talking about louis vuitton yeah all these fashion houses and so the so she showed a page that was selling these and some of these digital clothing items were well over a hundred dollars and and i'm still trying to learn about nfts as well i don't understand the allure of these digital art assets so Clearly, I'm not the demographic, but but I'm, fa I'm fascinated by it and I want to learn more because I just I need to understand it a little bit more. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But anyways, <laughs> those are some of the other things that I thought just were provocative and interesting. So, Mila. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about our favorite se segment, It Doesn't All Suck. And then we are going to talk about this segment because obviously, in reality, nothing sucked this week. It was very inspiring. It was a super great opportunity. We learned a lot. We Some of the topics are intense and are that's what dire situations, right? Yeah. yeah. So there are some things that you really have to think about. Oh, my God, I cannot believe that was happening. Statistics were gruesome. So the It Doesn't All Suck part of this episode comes from the comedian and musician called Marcia Belsky. So Marcia um, 
read somewhere, and I don't know where, but I'm uh, taking it from an article in a magazine that we're going to put in, in the notes for the book. And, and just a note, she sang a song, like a musical. Yeah. She created a musical out of this news that you're going to share. Exactly. So, <laughs> exactly. so I'm going to talk about the news, and then she created a musical, and we describe a little bit of the musical. So anyway, in 1983... There was an astronaut. It was the first time that a, an American astronaut, Sally Ride, she was going to space. It was this, the first time. So Russia had sent the, the first woman. Yes. It wasn't until 1983 that astronaut Sally Ride became the first American woman in Spain. In, in Spain, <laughs> no American woman went to Spain before 1983. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> I feel like I've read a lot of books that says something different. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So, female astronauts have been subjected to some absurd and nearly offensive moments in the male-dominated field of space exploration. From space secretaries to the time NASA sent a hundred tampons into space. For her week-long mission in space, NASA engineers famously asked Ride whether she would need a hundred tampons to carry with her on board. And by the way, this magazine article was written by a guy because the next phrase says, even if Ride were to have an exceptionally heavy flow, that's still about 72 tampons too many. At least he did better math. Yeah. But women mistraining in the space was a big concern at what one point in time. With people worried, I, I wonder who is this people? Is it the NASA it's engineers? Men. Come on, it's men. Yeah, it's of men. course it's men, but is it NASA engineers? With people worried, they may get too emotional to be able to operate in the space station, seriously. Even upon her return back to Earth, Bride had to face questions by the media asking her whether she cried when she was under pressure and whether the flight would affect her reproductive organs, according to an interview with Bride shortly after her return from space. So Marsha created a hilarious song that expresses the absurdity of the offer and it places in your imagination the image of a hundred temples tied together like sausages. Maybe this is a good moment for us to let the audience have a little listen to uh, what we were able to hear from Marsha. I can picture it now. Come with me. I'm Sally Ride and I'm going to space for the first time. I'm walking tall, I feel so proud. Then I see a man running panic through the crowd. He's holding a large bag. I think, what can this be? And then he hands 100 tampons to me. And then he hands 100 tampons to me for one week. They could have asked me. I would have said maybe 33. Cause even if it were my period week, I probably already brought some with me. Seriously, this song had us like really holding our stomachs from laughter. It was so funny because the other thing is that Marcia was repeating the, uh, all the time and there were a hundred 
and there were a hundred, a hundred temples. And then the second part of the whole sketch with Marcia was that she talked about all the Twitter comments, the, the comments that she got via Twitter or DM about the fact that then she was talking too much about the temples and why she was highlighting the temples. I mean, I don't know. The song might have been about that. The other thing was all the men trying to help her understand how women's flow usually go and how they should change. All these love mansplaining about my own body. It's delightful. Yeah, yeah. But it, it was hilarious. It's really hilarious. We're going to put the, her a, a link to her YouTube video. So you can uh, listen to the song and laugh and laugh. Imagine a hundred tampons for a week in space and they don't even uh, realize, okay, maybe if she had the need, maybe she brought like, them with herself. Like, <laughs> I'm only going to be gone seven days. Yeah. I, and and by the way, that's if I get my period while I'm there. And if I do, probably pack it myself. Yeah. <laughs> So it was hilarious. Yeah. It's so true. And just a delightful expression of what mansplaining is about. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> Anyways, all right, we're coming to the end. And so it's time for this week's Ask. And as I mentioned, we want you to consider the question that Ted Women posed to the speakers and to all of us attendees. What's next? In light of everything happening in the world, in your country, your community, your life, what's next? For women, work and play, planet Earth, ingenuity and invention, and for the future. And consider this a question of opportunity and possibility. While it might be addressing scary and concerning aspects that we're all faced with and inundated with, what are the possibilities that are out there for us to chase, explore, and scream at the top of our lungs? As always, we'll post the question out on social media, and we would love to hear what you think. That's a little flavor of what we took away from the 2021 TED Women Conference. There was so much more, and we promised to share with you information about the speakers that we referenced in the podcast, plus others that we didn't have time for, such as Lily Singh, who spoke about her experience in the entertainment industry and about building a different table, and Cass, who is an activist for sex education and podcaster of The Spread in Kenya. So please keep a lookout for that and please go out and explore some of these topics and people that we have shared with you. In the meantime, please check out the content at www.houseofapis.com and become a member of The Hive, where we host conversations on many other topics. And for those of you that have already found us, please invite your friends and colleagues to check us out. The more, the merrier and the meatier the conversation. We really would love to have your friends join us. So until next time... Goodbye from Palm Springs. Bye-bye. <laughs>